0: slate for my observatory on episode 382 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. So uh, Shane, you you are on the ball as usual. We have a small correction to make about when we're going to announce the Patreon calendar winners. What's going on?
1: Yeah. So in a couple of episodes, I think we said that we would announce it on December the 11th. Well, we're changing that just slightly. It'll be December 14th. Um, so that episode will uh, will will announce, yeah, who won the calendars. And as a reminder, it's basically any of our Patreon supporters have an opportunity to win in uh, a 2024 RASC observers calendar. We'll just randomly pick a few names and, uh, announce it on that show.
0: Yeah. And the reason is, is that we are going to, for the first time in the around four years we've been doing the podcast, we're going to take the Christmas holidays off-ish, I think is the plan.
1: Yeah. I think you're traveling and, uh, won't be available, which is great. Well, not great, but you know, it's fine.
0: (laughs) Shane gets a break from me. There, you've heard it here.
1: (laughs) Yes. But, uh, anyway, yeah. So we're just trying to do a couple extra recordings during our normal uh, recording sessions, yeah. which allows us to churn out episodes, but also not have to record during our normal cadence over the holiday season.
0: Yeah, we appreciate everybody for listening, and yeah, I think we decided this at, at one point in time that, uh, you know, we would try to do like, you know, after the pandemic holidays and weekends and, you know, start introducing a few breaks, uh, you know, just to let, let listeners know now ahead of time that, uh, yeah, and if you're if you're really you know, hired up for some actual astronomy listening, you, you can go back and listen to one of the nearly 400 episodes that we will have recorded.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's
0: there's a lot there. <laughs> so I'll talk about my observatory in a sec, but, uh, you know, read a listener email first, because for me, Shane, anyway, I'm not sure how much of an impact doing this podcast has had on you, but for me, it's really helped me get focused on my own astronomy and as part of that excuse me i end up uh getting an old cabin a nice piece of land put an observatory on and then eventually we've we've built an observatory there and now able to uh yeah now able to start doing some astronomy there and still quite a few more tweaks to go and but i think by the spring we should be uh pretty much a hundred percent up and running maybe by, you know, mid June, probably a little bit of cement work needs to be done still, but, uh, you know, it's, it's in a usable state as is, I think so pretty exciting.
1: Yeah. You know, this was a, a project that had started a little while ago and I know you've had some ups and downs and, you know, in terms of when you thought it might be done and some challenges along the way, but it's great to see that it's operational and mm-hmm. that you were able to look at some stars last night.
0: Yeah, but uh, just to get going, though, I think uh, we will read a listener email. Uh, Do you want me to start? And then... uh, Sure. Yeah, I'll just start reading. uh, The the person who wrote in was uh, Liam, and he goes on to say, Dear Chris and Shane, I've been enjoying your podcast for a couple years. Many thanks. Well, thank you for listening, and thank you for writing in. We really do appreciate it. Uh, Liam goes on to say, I am a member of a local astronomical society, but I meet up with them only about once a month or so. However, listening to your podcast and the folks who write in gives me twice a week during my drive to work. Uh, a sense of fellowship in the hobby of visual astronomy, and I always welcome that. Uh, I enjoy hearing the observing notes and have for a long time wanted to write up and share some of mine. So here it goes. Thursday, November 30th. Uh, I have several telescopes that I was using. These include 50, 60, 70, 80, and 120 millimeter refractors ranging from F5 through F7 and a 90 millimeter Max Sutov. And Liam enjoys using them all. On this evening, I decided to use my first telescope, a eight inch F6 Newtonian on a Dobsonian base, which my wife had gifted me at the beginning of COVID. Yeah. I used a Telrad and then a StellarView. 10 by 60 finder to get me to where I want to observe. Then I use the eyepiece. The finder has a illuminated reticle and that was a real game changer for my observing. The telescope has a two inch focuser, but on this evening I used a one and a quarter inch adapter and observing from my backyard, which uh, he lives in Virginia. So that would be nice. I imagine that this time of year probably not minus 12.
1: Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Yep.
0: <laughs> so he goes on to say that uh he has a small area that's shaded from all the streetlights that surround his home. And he can go out and, uh, you know, sort of be, be semi dark adapted. And he also sometimes will go and drive 30 minutes to a local uh, dark sky site, where he goes on to say, I typically observe with observers, uh, which is certainly a lot of fun, but I often like the experience of observing on my own. It's a great way to wind down and relax. I use Sky Safari. To plan out and record my observing sessions. I always use an observing chair. This is critical to me actually spending some time at the eyepiece and looking carefully without any hurry at what I'm looking at. My view of the sky from my backyard is limited by my house and surrounding trees, but I do have a couple of windows of open sky. Recently I've had to clear, recently I've had a clear view of Cassiopeia and have spent a lot of time observing uh, what it has to show. On this evening, I spent some time on open clusters, including NGC663, which, strangely enough, I was reading about last night when I woke up in the middle of the night, and also NGC457, which is the ET, OWL, or Skydiver cluster. I switched to my BinoViewer and viewed it at 75 magnification, making it almost fill the whole field of view. Inspired by your podcast, I got an Arcturus Bino viewer and love using it to look at open and globular star clusters. It's very reasonably priced and works very well. NGC 457 looked amazing in its stereoscopic view. From there, I moved to the double cluster, still using the body Viewer, moving between the two clusters, and then I'm on the string of stars to stock two, aka the Muscleman cluster. All right, Shane, do you want to hop in by this time? Yeah.
1: Uh, So by this time, Auriga was in my window of viewing. So I moved over onto that constellation and observed some clusters, then including the pinwheel cluster. At first, I found moving a Newtonian telescope to be very tricky, given that its view is upside down and switched side to side but by now I have uh, used it enough to move it almost intuitively. Unlike my smaller telescope, I tend to use my whole upper body to move the Newtonian, using one handle at the top, one at the base, and sometimes also either my knee or shoulder to move the telescope's OTA. Finally, I turn the telescope up towards Jupiter. I always enjoy seeing the ways that its moons happen to be arranged, and this night was no exception. I switched out the Bino viewer and experimented with different single eyepieces, a 32 millimeter, a 16, and then settling on a 10 millimeter Bader Classic Ortho, which framed the view nicely at 120 times. The planet's bands were coming out or coming in and out of focus with the shifting atmosphere. I tried a couple of different filters to slightly darken the view and make the bands stand out more. I tried out Bader's contrast booster, but wanted something stronger. So I tried out a variable polarizing filter and found just the right level to bring out the bands clearly to me. By this point, I realized it had gotten late and that I had a lot of eyepieces, etc., to put away. So I called it a night. It was a fun evening and I spent some time relax or I spent some relaxed time looking carefully and without any hurry at a handful of objects. I also enjoyed experimenting with different eyepieces and the ongoing experience of learning new things about my telescope. Every time I use them, visual astronomy certainly requires skill and regular practice. Thanks again for the podcast and for all of the information and inspiration that you offer. Best wishes, Liam. Thanks so much, Liam. That was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Great email. And, uh, just, uh, just walking, like have him walking us through that observing session. Uh, I kind of felt that same level of, you know, pleasure, uh, just hearing it, you know, like just enjoying the night sky and just having some fun with the equipment and, and getting different views and experimenting with different combinations. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was awesome.
0: I saw a lot of you in, in that observing shame with the Bino viewer and the eyepiece mm-hmm. selection. And I thought, I thought you would enjoy that one. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. And I, I felt a little bad. We were. I, I was a little bit slow kind of getting uh, back to Liam. I did write him very, a very short reply and, and asked kindly if we could read his email in the show um, because I was uh, trying to get my observatory up and running sort of finally. um, Few little things going on there, Shane, to to get it up and running. I sent you a couple of photos. Not sure if you had a chance to take a look at those.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I did take a look. Looks uh, looks sharp. Yeah. Put the
0: scopes in yesterday afternoon. I should have waited for my my builder. Said he would come up and help. Like he's. He's such a great person. He really is. He's he's just awesome. And but I always feel like I'm I'm bugging him all the time, even though like I know these things really don't bug him at all. He's he's like happy to come and help and do whatever. And uh, but I just was eager. And he had some other errand to run. He had come up and was working on something, and then had to take off. And I'll come up in an hour, he said, and help you. And I was like, I'm not waiting. I'm putting telescopes in this observatory. <laughs> so, but I was putting one in, and I was telling you, I kind of. Almost I did drop it, but I didn't like drop it, drop it. And I kinda crushed my hand a bit between the uh the rail and the uh and the mount and kind of scraped my hand up a little bit. Wasn't a big deal with a six in or a six pound telescope, but if it was like a, like a really big refractor or something might have might have caused some damage. But uh Anyway, got those scopes in, and I'm still staying out here at the cabin. It's getting pretty chilly, and I did freeze up a line last night, so I'll have to try to sort that out later on this afternoon if it warms up. But, uh, yeah, things are going pretty good out here. The observatory is not finished yet. There's still uh, flooring and desk and a few other little things to go, but uh, we ran up some temporary power and... uh, it's, uh, it's starting to get to the
1: point. So Mike came out last night, Shane, and we were able to get some, some first light in it. Hmm, that's awesome. I was, uh, I did a little backyard observing last night. We had friends over for supper and a couple glasses of wine. So I didn't, uh, I didn't think driving was the right thing to do.
0: No, that's the way it goes, of course. And, uh, what did you take a look at?
1: Uh, just a couple carbon stars. Um, one in Ursa major, and then another one in Taurus. Um, I'm adding carbon stars to the backyard repertoire just because mm-hmm. you can, you know, light pollution doesn't really impact that. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to observe the different, uh, vibrance of the reds or shades of the reds, um, you know, as these carbon stars appear. Uh, so that was kind of neat. And then I uh, looked at Jupiter and uh, Uranus with my little 63 millimeter refractor. I-, I did take a look at Neptune, but in that little refractor, it really, neptune really isn't that fun so Mm -hmm. (laughs) but the others were great um it was a pretty short session for me maybe 45 minutes and then i i packed it in so but let's hear about the uh the initial observatory session
0: oh man it was it was pretty cool because i i put the scopes up i think i sent you the shot of the scopes up and then um we had to put the temporary we have temporary power run and it's it's pretty big the uh the mount I've got in the observatory is an Azeq6, and it has a, it has some high power consumption requirements from what I've read. And so I'd gone over the specs with my builder, and he knows a little bit more about this stuff than I do. He's really good. And I bought a power cable to run up there as temporary power, and he said, we're not putting that power cable up there. That's just going to be problems. So he's somebody who in the past has worked as a professional framer, now like runs his own um sort of personal company and uh and so he brought in one of his uh cables that they would like run from i think like basically some sort of uh like outlet somewhere like when you're building a house into the house like to actually build the house and it has a lot of uh power carrying capacity and whatever you need for that kind of stuff which i don't know that much about and so he ran that up last weekend and and then we uh we sort of Messed around with it a bit to uh, patch the telescope in, in a, in a way that, uh, that we can sort of run things, uh, you know, when I'm out here and we put stuff in, but it's kind of still a matter of putting stuff in and then taking it out because, uh, he's still doing some work there. So, so he did that and I had the telescope set up and then we rolled the roof off and it was just this beautiful, like, I can't believe how nice yesterday was as far as a December day here in Saskatchewan. Usually Shane, we're looking, I think this time last year, we were lucky if we were cracking, uh, Temperatures warmer than negative 20. And yesterday was positive two degrees Celsius out here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Um, have to take advantage of these temperatures because it can always be much colder this time of the year in Saskatchewan.
0: Yeah. So it was, it was neat. Uh, I had the telescopes up and then we flipped the, we got the power working and I was a little bit concerned, maybe the, uh, the power on the uh, mount wouldn't run because, um, well, it had been sort of around in the cold for a number of weeks now, like two weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, as well, like I really hadn't powered it up yet. Like, you know, when I bought it from, I actually bought it from one of our listeners, Ian, and uh, we turned it on of course and run it through its paces and that. So I knew it worked then, but it had sort of been sitting around for a number of months and then a number of weeks here in the cold. So Uh, that was always a bit of a question mark in my mind. So I was really happy when that little red light came on. And uh, yeah, and then we just kind of, just sort of stood there looking at it, took that photo, but my builder and I just kind of hung out in the observatory for about an hour, like going, wow, like like, this is really going to work, you know, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. sort of surprisingly enough. um, In a way, like I'm not too surprised. He's a fantastic builder. And uh, the way it rolls off is, well, a lot of people have asked me, what kind of motor or hand crank or what, like, how do you roll it off? And it's like, no, you just need to use like four fingers on one hand and it and it rolls pretty smooth. Uh, it hadn't rolled as smooth for a while. And, and then he did some modifications to it and, uh, has it rolling quite easily now. And, uh, so you just undo a few turnbuckles and it just, uh, just rolls off, it takes about, it takes about two and a half minutes to, uh, to get it rolled back and and then to the same amount of time to roll it back in place. It takes very, very um, little time, but it's a eight by 10 shed. Um, He did the the building on it. We had uh, a long list of things that I wanted to uh, make sure worked pretty good before we uh, put any telescopes in there. So one of the things I learned from you, you and I uh, Shane talked a fair bit about observatories because you had had one and and I had noted down all these shortcomings that that you had run into. So I did learn a lot from you, and appreciate because uh, you had what one of those uh, pods for a number of years, eh?
1: I did, yeah, yeah, quite a few years. I can't remember exactly how long, and uh, I used it fairly extensively. Probably the first two or three years that I owned it, and then it slowly my usage slowly dwindled for a number of reasons, mm-hmm. um, primarily just having a fixed location. Um, in my backyard for a telescope kind of limited what I could observe. Because for anybody that has observed in a backyard, uh, like in an urban setting, there's usually a whole bunch of obstacles that are in your way, whether it's other buildings or trees or whatever. And the way you overcome that is by moving the telescope around yep. and, you know, an observatory sort of defeats that. Right. And, you know, as such, I I found, I was actually starting to observe more outside of my observatory than inside of it. And, Mm -hmm. uh, like I say, the usage dropped out and I sold it, but, um, you know, having like my lesson learned for myself is an observatory is a great thing, but it needs the right location. And Mm -hmm. my backyard was not the right location.
0: So I spent a long time sweating over this, as you know, Mm-hmm. and, um, cause we have like, our land isn't huge. We have two lots, there's a cabin on one of the lots and then there's a vacant lot, which I bought for this hill. The hill is, is really great to observe from, but I did kind of play around with the idea of putting it like closer to the cabin simply for convenience sake, especially in really cold weather or if there's a lot of snow. Uh, but in the end, I, I, I followed your advice and I talked to some neighbors Um, because my concern was if the snow drifts a certain way, I actually can't get to the hilltop from my cabin. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, that could be a problem. So, uh, but if it does drift that way, the hill blows clear. So there's no snow up there, but there's just snow between here and there, which is about, I don't know, 50 or 75 feet or something. And uh, I talked to my neighbors and they said, yeah, it's no problem. You can just come through our yard uh, when the conditions are like that. That's they're, they're more than happy. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so with that, I kind of really settled on putting it up on the Hill uh, to follow your advice, which is go for that all sky view. And then working with my builder, we uh, very carefully designed the wall height to be such that the wall height essentially matches the contours of my landscape, uh, more or less. So you get to see about ninety-five percent of the visible sky, and the part that you can't see, of course, is just right on the horizon. But even insofar as how the roof rolls back, it it lines up with the tree line to my north, which rises up a little bit, and so I don't really lose any usable sky. You can't see, like last night, the Big Dipper was sort of coming up through the trees to the north. You'd never point a telescope through there, and you can't see um, you know, it, it, when it's sort of behind these trees, but you'd, you'd never be pointing a telescope there anyway. So mm-hmm. we, we worked hard to match that. And then even if you take a look at that photo, I sent you, you can kind of see just barely, a, a hair of the Hill that's behind me. And then you can see a couple of the, um, tops of the trees, uh, that, that are nearby. So I do lose just, um, you know, maybe one degree all the way around. Um, From what the true horizon is. And then there's, there's a bright dome from the city. And of course, uh, I made it slightly higher in in that direction because there, we needed support in that corner. But yeah, so we kind of settled that. The other thing that I learned from you, Shane, was you had a lot of um, like heat and humidity challenges, I think, if I recall.
1: Yeah, it would get pretty warm during the daytime in there. And then almost every night it would hit like a hundred percent humidity. And I had a wireless temperature and humidity gauge inside of the observatory so I could monitor it. And -hmm. it shocked me uh how how much humidity was in there all of the time. And then yeah, in the summertime, like it was a gray sky pod shed, but it would easily get 40-45 degrees in there. It seemed to stabilize at that point, like it didn't really matter how hot the day was. Uh, I shouldn't say that it didn't matter how high the maximum temperature would get. Um, but on the hottest of days, it would be 40 degrees, maybe 45, but even on like a kind of medium ranged hot day, it would still be 40 degrees. In that so, yeah. so it got pretty warm.
0: Yeah. So and with that in mind, I'd watch this video. It's a great video. You can Google it by Richard Berry. And he's a longtime telescope maker and amateur astronomer, uh, you know, all kinds of different backgrounds in astronomy. And uh, he did this video during the pandemic, I think it was for the AAVSO, and he talked about handling the heat and humidity by raising the floor up and making sure you had all this extra ventilation. Like when you build like a wooden mm-hmm. structure, that's um, something you can do. I was going to say that's easy to do. It is not easy to do. Trust me. Um versus when you get um one of these skyshed pods which are awesome for their convenience and ease of use for example how long did it take you to get your pod up and running when you purchased
1: it yeah like not even 30 minutes probably okay
0: so we started the observatory on june 20th and yesterday was the third of december mm-hmm. so or second of december sorry um yeah, so almost six months. So there's a little, there's a little difference in uh, in that, and and that is definitely one of the uh, shortcomings of trying to work around uh, the, the often, you know, impactful issues that, that you have when you have an observatory. So what we did is instead of building it right on flat ground. And after we did this, I realized why even with those challenges, people might decide to build it on flat ground um, because it definitely does uh, increase uh, many of the other uh, challenges with having an observatory. But by building it onto the side of a hill, um, we created about a it's probably about close to a one meter air gap between the floor and the ground. And uh, it's it's sort of open on the east which is the cooler side, as we all know, because the sun sets in the west and you have the e- uh, afternoon, evening, heating. So once you get into the afternoon and evening, it actually is pretty cool underneath there. The ground tends to hold a lot of uh, the coolness. And as such, it, it does tend to keep the observatory a fair bit colder. Um and then the other thing we did towards the the end of the warm season is we put in giant house vents in it. Like basically it has house vents like my neighbor's house has. And that house I think is around a thousand square feet. Well, my observatory isn't even a hundred square feet and we've got about as much ventilation as their entire attic does. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's that makes a big difference. There's, there's some other sort of weird and wacky things that I did. One thing I got from Richard Berry was to use a transparent roof And this serves a a number of purposes and typically raises the most questions when anybody uh, looks at it. I'm still a little bit unsure, but my builder was extremely unsure and advised strongly against it and uh, said that he would do it if I wanted. He, by trade, um, in addition to being a framer, had worked for a time as a professional roofer and knows a lot about roofing and decided that in order to do this, he would actually bring in one of his colleagues who is um, also an expert roofer to do the roofing. And they did it and it looks, I think it looks really nice. And inside what you get is you get about a its about a 50% illumination is what you have on the outside. So if it's pretty bright and sunny outside, you go in there and it's almost like you're wearing a pair of uh, polarized sunglasses inside Um, it kind of dims the light down a little bit but um, basically it's like being outside but with sunglasses on you can sort of function and do things around and you can actually work on stuff and then we um, put in some windows and that sort of thing too to uh, create some added ventilation when uh, when needed so you can go in and work it was nice yesterday beautiful sunny day and you go up and because that's one thing I found with a lot of other observatories I've been in is that you open the door and it's you know beautiful sunny day and now it's pitch black inside and you may not want to open it for whatever reason maybe it's windy or there's a chance of rain or or who knows what it's just nice to be able to go in and not have to turn lights on and like i said we didn't even have the power run to it at that point so it was nice to be able to go in and uh, and do some work in there and i also have a drop down wall that was the other thing that that uh that he did what what i end up doing was i bought a book um, on building amateur observatories. It's a really old book by Richard Berry. I had other books, but during his presentation, he had mentioned this and I tracked it down. I think I paid like 20 or 25 bucks for it. It's basically like a magazine and has blueprints and it's from the 80s, but the designs are from like the, as early as like the 40s or 50s and going up to the 70s, but no later. And we we essentially took one of those blueprints and, and modified it. And uh, what my builder did is, he took these books, he he went through, he flipped through them all. He didn't like sit and read them. He said, I'm not going to do that. And then he kind of started sketching out what he thought the design should be based on like knowing me and what I had told him about my observing. And one thing I didn't include was a drop down wall. And I, when I said nothing about a drop down wall, he asked about a drop down wall. And I said that all the people I knew who had them didn't use them as much because they were often, they're, they're pretty heavy shame. I'm not sure if you've ever used them before, but they can be heavy and awkward to use.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah I've never really uh seen one uh in an observatory before well I shouldn't say that actually I think Lucy and Kimball's observatory that the the local club here um took custodianship of I think it actually does have a drop down near the entrance but uh don't quote me on that
0: yeah I'm not. is that even in use or
1: uh not really in use no it's yeah. just out at the site
0: yeah so and that's kind of what, what I've seen with with a lot of observatories or hear from a lot of people who are building observatories is that um, the roof ends up being a bit heavy or like these drop downs end up uh, not in use because they're, they're heavy or whatever. So he came up with a, a design for like this hybrid drop down. It doesn't drop down like the full width. It drops down about seven and a half feet, uh, but it's only about eight inches tall. It's not really tall, but he matched it to the height that the telescope would be at such that I can get down to within about three degrees of the true Southern horizon. And, uh, over on the other side of the valley that I'm on there, there are some lights. And then every once in a while you do get a car that turns into a road over there and it can kind of sweep you with lights. And it was always like, I don't want to catch those lights in the telescope because it's basically going to blind me for like 20 minutes afterwards. And then like, there are a few like, um, you know, house lights and and the odd street light that's over there too. And so it's designed so that when you're inside you don't see any of that. Um, all you see is just basically more or less dark sky of course you know I'm only 40 minutes out of the city so I do get uh, some light pollution but yeah so that drop down works pretty good. The one sort of oddity in the design is and <laughs> this is by design that he came up with is that you have to use the drop down. There's no option not to use the drop down. Um, you have to turn the drop down down in order to open the roof it's part okay. of the seal of the observatory so mm. that when you when you get it open to run it you you put the drop down down and then you open the roof so it kind of you know forces you to use it so then you do start looking at things in the southern sky you don't just end up leaving it up and observing around it and uh and at first i was like when he showed it to me, I was like, I don't know about that. But then like last night in use, it was great because
1: mm.
0: we were frigging around with things and we wanted to look at the Helix Nebula eventually just to test things out and punched it in and, and uh, yeah, went and took a look at the Helix Nebula uh, simply because that was one of the nearest deep sky objects to where we ended up having the scope pointed. And so that kind of method to his madness, I thought was uh, pretty brilliant in the end.
1: Well, that's good that it worked out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It worked out really well. Um, and it rolls, that was the one thing we, we only did, we only did about two and a half hours, um, because we were a little bit concerned if we had trouble getting it rolled back on, uh, that, well, one, I thought, well, it it would be fine to leave open. It was a nice, beautiful, clear, cold night. Um, but, uh, I thought if, if I had to call him, if we did have an issue, then he would probably still come up if it was like nine 30 or quarter to 10. But, uh, yeah, so we, we did a few hours or a couple hours more and, uh, and then rolled it on. It only took like, again, two and a half, three minutes in the dark, never having put it back on in the dark before. And it rolled, um, strangely enough, it rolled much better, uh, in the cold than it did, uh, in the heat of the day. So that was another little bit of a surprise because we hadn't used it at night before and hadn't used it in, uh, You know minus seven temperatures before Uh, but somehow like the way that he designed it it actually rolls much much easier when it's cold uh, because he set the tracks a certain way so if you roll it when it's like 40 degrees out it's actually hard to roll it like it's not hard but it's harder it's really a bit of a grunt but the colder that temperature like typically like a nighttime temperature of around you know uh, seven or eight degrees Um, that's when it's designed to roll. It turns out sort of strangely enough, somehow he's incorporated that. So it's very easy to roll. Um, once you get into those cooler nighttime temperatures.
1: Mm, Well, that's good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of things like that. So what we did first is had the telescopes up. We had it open. Mike came out, um, he came in, I had, a you know, beautifully warmed up in here and, uh, we kind of hung out for a bit while I got ready. I'd already been up in the observatory for like hours at that point. So I kind of need to be inside for a short while. And then, uh, then we moved it on up and, uh, got the, uh, we did like the one star alignment and then we were cruising around and we were just, uh, having fun playing with the, like, I've never really had a go-to telescope that worked very well before. And this one works quite well. And so we were just kind of having fun with the go-to and, Something I forgot about, which Ian told me about when I bought it from, him, is you do have to be careful with the cord wrapping around it. So, of course, mm-hmm. after uh, about an hour of this, we got the cord nice and wrapped, and it really pulled pretty hard. And you uh, know, everything is, is cold, and it pulled the power out. And then um, because it was. Everything was getting so cold at that point, we had trouble getting the power reseeded. So we had to go through a lot of these cycles of do star alignments and then use it for a little bit. And then it would knock out within a few minutes. And so we came back down, got warmed up a little bit. We got some tape and we went back up with some electrical tape and we just like taped down that connector pretty hard. It's just a cigarette lighter connector. I don't know why, but for some reason, that's like the chief way to connect these mounts to power doesn't really seem to be too many other good options, but uh I will be exploring that because that connection in the cold weather is not reliable.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there it really is a terrible way to to connect power.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it works fine. Like it worked fine at first, but then, you know, when we started, I think it was minus four. And, you know, it was dropping at the rate of about a degree an hour last night. And so by the time it got to minus seven, we just, it wouldn't stay. Like it has like a springiness to it and the plastic lost that rigidity. And so, yeah, that, that became a little bit of a problem there. So, um, we had to go through those cycles. It was, it was nice. You know, I talked about perhaps putting one of my other scopes up. I only use the hundred millimeter, but I put the 60 on as a counterweight. Mm-hmm. And so I did spend some time balancing it out. I wasn't really sure. The thing I wasn't sure about with this mount, uh, which I'm happy to report uh, does actually work pretty good, is how well it would work as a manual mount.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Are you able to um, release the clutches like that kind of manual movement and just? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. And so the thing that I wasn't sure about is when you release the clutches, It like to me anyway, just in playing with it, even in the daylight, it seemed like it was sort of a little bit of all or none. But you know, once I started using it, I got the knack for it within about an hour or so of oh, you can actually still leave a little bit of tension on them. And then I actually quite like the way it works. I know some people complain about it or whatever, but. For me anyway, just releasing the clutches just a little bit so I can scooch to a different part of the sky and just point it at things manually. Because while having a go-to is, is it was just kind of fun for about an hour. Um, and that's this is exactly the same thing I found with um, my AZ-GTI is that after I kind of used it for an hour and had some fun just kind of you know playing around getting it to point to stuff, that novelty wears off pretty quick for me. And I just kind of, like, I know where stuff is. I just want to throw the clutches and point it at Whatever it is, right? So, so I was able to uh, to kind of learn how to get that working. But I was glad I only had the six pound um, Takahashi hundred millimeter on it last night. Um, and, and you know, at a future point in time, I will put the bigger scope on there. But I think that learning curve was much much easier with a small lightweight telescope than it would be with you know a really big telescope. So I was glad in the end that we had sort of made that decision, even though we could have put the big scope up. Mm -hmm. It was pretty cool. Um, Yeah. So we had a, had a nice view using the go-to, we just, you know, put it on the veil, had a nice view of the veil just for fun, took a look at M27, took a look at the uh, North American nebula, which in that telescope, and you're in there and, Like when you're in there, you don't see any other lights. It's very dark and you can be fully dark adapted. And, you know, it was Saturday night. It's early. It's only like seven 30. The odd car is driving by and people are starting to do their Christmas visitations and having Christmas lights on and stuff. Nothing. There's nothing here very close by. It's all very, very far in the distance, but even that little bit of light always does seem to uh, detract from your dark adaptation. So yeah, we were able to have, uh, have some nice views of those things, particularly in the North American maybe It was pretty nice. And then uh, the last thing we looked at was, was the helix before we started getting into this power thing and then decided that I just wanted to start using it manually after that. And so, we we took a poke around and looked at the open clusters up in Origa and the Pleiades. And then we looked at Jupiter for a long time. And then, um, yeah, then we started talking about how we would pack it down. So, trying to be a little bit careful and cautious because both Mike and I had long work weeks, uh, last week and we were pretty tired by about nine o'clock or so. So we were like, okay, and we've done two hours. And like I said, I, I didn't want to push my luck, um, trying to pack things away, like in the middle of the night and running into a problem or something would have, uh, not been an enjoyable experience, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So,
1: um, and, and that's kind of the beauty of this time of the year too, is we can get the observing in before we get too tired
0: yeah exactly exactly but it was it was so nice i was so appreciative that mike came out because when i did start running into those power issues you know i've got a lot i've got a lot riding on this to make sure it works right Mm -hmm. and uh and it was really nice to have him there and he's like oh no like like we'll sort this out kind of thing and you know let's go down and just get some tape and take a break and yeah so we did that and so that was pretty good and uh one of the concerns i did have um my builder uh, and I decided to go with a wooden pier a post in the ground, and this this tends to be kind of a controversial thing. In fact, even just sending some photos to a few of our listeners, I did have one person right back and go, "Wow, yeah, like you're you're a rebel kind of thing going with a a wooden post." Um, the reason why we did that though is that there are already many wooden posts in the ground up there, and Shane, I think one week we were talking about whether or not it would stay level. And we had a listener asking if it would stay level. I don't know if you remember that or not. No, I don't. And that person was wondering if I had a way to work around that, which kind of sort of do, but uh, I'm sort of happy to report that so far it has remained completely a hundred percent level. So by using the same method that other people have used to put similar posts into the ground on the same Hill, it has remained level just like those posts have. And, yeah. So we knew that going in, if we followed that same procedure, that very likely we would remain, uh, level and it has remained level, uh, throughout the warmth of the summer. We put it in June 20th and that's a lot of time, a lot of rain fell, a lot of dryness, um, a lot of cracks in the earth and then some snow and some freezing cold weather. And it has, it has remained level. So fingers crossed it, uh, it does remain level. There is a little bit of vibration. I was talking with Mark Radici. Uh, in the summer about that and that vibration is there strangely enough it's mostly in the center so if you hit the mount itself and you do have to kind of give it a good wrap um, you can see it vibrate a little bit for about seven seconds Uh, in focus though like when you're focusing it's about two two and a half seconds of, of vibration once you let go of the focus and i mean that one is really subtle i'd say it's in the same range as any of my tripods um, but having that little bit of vibration on the mount itself, uh, we're going to in the spring, uh, do some, uh, do some work to mitigate that. So that's, that's the plan there. So anyway, it was cool.
1: sort of a good first trial run. It was really fun. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's exciting to hear that you were able to use it and, uh, um, you know, I, I would imagine with any of these builds, you know, there's always going to be additional things to kind of work out or, or correct. So it's good that you're able to use it and start to identify, you know, maybe some of the little refinements that you can do to, you know, really finish it off and make it the experience you want.
0: Yeah. He's got the wood to, he's going to put in a custom little fold down desk and a chart table and, and that sort of thing, just as he is, as he has time. Um, I really appreciate like his time and patience with me and building this. He, he built it out of almost as much out of interest to build something like this, because it has to be built very exacting, and he is um, somebody who can do that type of work. My original plan was to hire a company that I know to build me a shed that I would then just have assembled on site on a flat piece of ground, so it wouldn't have been in the right spot. I would have been into the issues with um, having it on right on the ground itself with the humidity and moisture, and and, and perhaps not as as ventable. Um, that was my original plan. The cost I, so I saved up for that. And the cost of that, uh, would have been twice, um, what the cost of doing it this way was, even though it probably would have been faster by sort of going the this slow and steady pace. Um, it has been an, an affordable, uh, experience versus, uh, something which, uh, which I might have ac- actually had to put off a number of, of, uh, further years in order to afford. So I, I feel very fortunate that, uh, That uh, I was able to find somebody local who who was excited to do this and uh, and took like a vested interest in in making it very uh, very much the way that I want it and the way that an observatory needs to work. So it's been very lucky for me. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. So yeah, you've you've come out and seen it sort of in pre-production. Now you'll have to maybe come out if we can get a good night here in the uh, in the winter time. Once we get a few more things done to it. So now that we've had a head a trial. He's going to come out this afternoon here and and we'll go over some of the things and we'll, uh, yeah, we'll go from there.
1: Perfect. Yeah.
0: Anything to add to this uh, bit of a monologue from me on my observatory? (laughs) A little bit. No, No, nothing else really. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, you can always send us your show ideas, observations, and questions to actual at gmail.com. And thanks to Mark Ridicci for getting me off the fence and into my own observatory. He's he's much to uh, thank and and perhaps some to blame for my, my current state. So appreciate that, Mark.
1: Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, Or, if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.